Explicit content is found in this episode, so listener discretion is advised. If you or a loved one is experiencing domestic violence, please reach out for help. The U.S. hotline is 800-799-7233, and the hotline in England is 0808-200-247. You can also call your respective emergency number, such as 911 or 999. Welcome back to the True Crime Fan Club Podcast. I'm your host, Lainey. For people who don't come from money, wealthy people are an enigma. It's easy to overlook the fact that wealthy people have problems, sometimes akin to our own issues. But the victims in today's cases highlight that no matter how much money someone has, you're not always safe. Okay, on to the show. Emma Jane Stockton was a descendant of Richard Stockton, who was one of the men who signed the United States Declaration of Independence. Aside from signing the declaration, he was a prominent lawyer, with one of the largest law practices in the colonies. In 1776, he was returning to New Jersey from a fact-finding mission and was captured by the British. He suffered five weeks of torture, then was released and allowed to return to Morven, his family home in Princeton. His home had been ravaged by the British, and his entire library was burned. He reopened his law practice, and two years later, after he had been released from prison, he developed lip cancer, which quickly spread to his throat. Richard Stockton died on February 28, 1781. His home, which would go on to become the governor's mansion, is where Emma Jane Stockton's father was born. Emma Jane, or EJ as she was known by her friends, was a fixture in the philanthropic community of New Jersey and a strong supporter of the Greater Trenton Symphony. EJ had toured throughout Europe and served as the executive secretary for the Greater Trenton Symphony. In 1979, she bought a home in the Mill Hill neighborhood. The cost of the home was $4,500, purchased with money she had recently inherited from her two aunts. She began remodeling the home, which she had purchased at the request of the mayor of Trenton, Arthur Holland. He sought her support and presence to gentrify the area. He lived just down the street from EJ. By December 1979, EJ had spent approximately $70,000 to remodel the house. That's almost $300,000 in today's money. Despite such a large sum of money, EJ's closest friends did not consider her to be wealthy. On December 7, 1979, three months to the day after she moved in, EJ was supposed to attend the annual candlelight ball for the Triton Boys Club. Her escort, Albert Barrett, arrived at her house around 6.30 and rang the bell. He tried for 15 minutes, and not receiving an answer, went to a local Italian restaurant to call EJ. Receiving no answer there, he returned to the home and continued knocking and ringing the bell. Before long, a crowd of concerned neighbors began to gather outside of EJ's house. One of the neighbors, Peter, found a ladder and propped it against the back of a vacant townhouse next to EJ's. When he got to the top, he jumped an 18-inch gap between the two homes and entered EJ's house through a French door on the second-floor balcony. The door looked as if it had already been forced open. Neighbors outside EJ's house could hear Peter calling Emma Jane with no reply. Peter continued his search by climbing to the third floor, where the master bedroom was. 
What he found there was horrific, and he took a few minutes to take it all in, trying to reconcile what he was seeing. He finally realized the blood-drenched tableau in front of him was a body and ran out of the house just as officers from the Trenton Police Department arrived. He yelled at them, My God, get in there! As Peter had moments earlier, the police found Emma Jane Stockton on her bed. She had been restrained in her canopy bed with wire hangers. Two seven-inch pieces of her bed had been fashioned into stakes and were driven into each leg. She had been stabbed 40 times, at least eight of those stab wounds coming from a corkscrew. She had also been stabbed with crochet needles and one hand was almost severed completely from her body. Yet none of these injuries were the killing blow. She died from asphyxiation when her rib cage was crushed. Investigators believe she had been tortured for two to three hours before she died. There were few leads into the homicide, although police did think there might have been a connection between an earlier break-in and rape EJ had suffered just a month before. The perpetrator of the earlier attack had not been found, and little evidence existed to compare the events. However, the window the perpetrator used to gain entry into the home was the same one her murderer used in December. EJ had not had the window fixed, saying she had already been raped, so she doubted anything else could happen. On December 19, 1979, a 63-year-old widow, Anna Chikoleski, was found dead in her home. Her co-workers at Switlick Parachute Company called the police when she failed to show up for work at 7 a.m. Anna lived alone and was just one month away from retiring. Her body was found in a rear bedroom of her home. She had been bludgeoned and strangled, which made it noteworthy that neighbors reported hearing Anna's car leave around 1 o'clock that morning. An off-duty Hopewell Township police officer was Christmas shopping the next day when he spotted a car matching Anna's. He notified the Hamilton Township Police who found the car at Ewing Bazaar. This led to the arrest of Keith Alford, a 24-year-old Trenton man for the murder. In February 1980, Keith Alford was also charged with EJ's murder when fingerprints and blood taken from the scene of EJ's rape and murder matched evidence from Anna's attack. Keith Alford was found guilty for both murders and sentenced to two life sentences. Imogene Stockton's last minutes on this earth were filled with pain, anguish, and indignity. However, her name would suffer even more indignity during the investigation. EJ had never been married and was friends with a large community of artists, many of whom were gay. It was under this light that investigators looked at EJ's life and initially theorized that EJ was murdered by a jealous homosexual lover. Within days, police determined these rumors were not true. Our second case involves the murder of Ann Scripps Douglas, an heiress to the Scripps newspaper Empire. Her great-great-grandfather, James E. Scripps, had founded the Detroit News in 1873. James Scripps had changed the newspaper world by advising his reporters to write like regular people actually talk. His competitors were disdainful, but his readers loved it. Anne was born in 1946, one of three children to Captain James Scripps III and Anne Gibbs Scripps. She attended the Covenant of the Sacred Heart High School in Albany, New York, and then attended a two-year finishing school. 
Anne came out to society in Vienna at the Schwarzenberg Palace, then attended debutante cotillion and Christmas ball in New York with nearly 100 other Debs. In 1969, she married Alexander Morell, a Wall Street broker. The pair had two daughters, Alexandra and Annie. Unfortunately, the couple split in 1988, although they remained very close after their divorce. Anne met Scott Douglas at a football party on January 1st, 1989. Scott was charming and swept Anne off of her feet. Scott's background was very different from Anne's. He had grown up in a middle-class working family and was a self-employed, out-of-work house painter when the pair met. In October 1989, the couple married in Anne's living room, with Anne's own daughter, Alexandra, only receiving three days' notice. Alexandra later said, When they first met, he was nothing but nice to her. He told her how much he loved her and how beautiful she was. He was just there at the right time and just made her feel good about herself and told her what she wanted to hear. Alexandra also said, I didn't like him. He doesn't have much of a personality. He's dumb. He's boring. I can't relate with him at all. I've never had a conversation of substance with him at all. Both of Anne's daughters tried to convince her to break it off with Scott, but the family rarely spent time together since the girls were both away at school and Anne and Scott traveled frequently. The distrust and dislike were also felt by some of Anne's friends who attended the wedding. One guest said, He was classless, a name dropper. You could see that immediately. He was shifty. He had a slimy, weak handshake. Didn't look you straight in the eye. Had no conversation. Nothing to say. A joke went around that day. Did you hear about that big bonfire in town? They're burning Scott Douglas's paintbrushes, since he planned on living a life of luxury with Anne's wealth. Anne did not tell her family she was getting married. Her mother defended this decision, saying that Anne did not want to worry her. As for Scott's family, he told Anne he was Jewish and that his mother was dead, which Anne later found out was untrue. His mother was alive and he had two sisters he had never mentioned. As evidenced by the comments from their wedding guests, Anne's friends felt Scott was a gigolo with eyes on Anne's inheritance. Little did Scott know that Anne's inheritance was tied up in a trust so it could not pass out of the family. The state law entitled Scott to one-third of Anne's estate, but she had shrewdly tied it up in a trust so he would only receive about $6,500 annually, which was taxable. The code of honor among the wealthy at this time was that the husband was supposed to appear self-supporting and pay for everything in public. Yet, Anne paid for everything, even if the couple went to dinner or a movie. Scott even charged Anne for jobs he did around the house. She kept her finances completely separated, which enraged him, particularly when she refused to buy him a new BMW. Anne was an heiress, but lived on the interest of her $1 million share of the Scripps estate. At the time, this worked out to be about $10,000 per month. In 1990, Anne and Scott had a daughter, Victoria, or Tori, but even before the marriage had turned sour, Scott tried to isolate his new family by not allowing certain friends in the house and keeping Anne from attending most social events. He began to pick fights with Anne and would berate her for minor things such as dinner being cold or her simply forgetting something. He also began throwing things at Anne when he was angry. 
All the while, tensions continue to grow between Scott and Anne's daughter, Alexandra. According to her, I would tell him all the time how much I hated him. I tell him I thought he was trash and that he was a dirtbag and I hated him, and I wished he was dead. He would tell me how he felt about me too. Everybody knew that we hated each other. Everybody knew. Alexandra moved out in 1990, and in 1991, her stepfather threatened to kill her. Alexandra sought an order of protection against Scott, and later that same year, Anne took the baby Tori and moved out. However, she went back to Scott after he promised to stop drinking and to seek counseling for his abusive behavior. Anne stayed with Scott because he would threaten to disappear with Tori so Anne would never see her again. Anne was terrified of losing her baby, so she endured the abuse for almost four years before deciding she'd had enough. In mid-November 1993, Anne went to family court and sought her own order of protection against Scott Douglas. On December 6, 1993, the order of protection was granted, but it only specified that Scott could not abuse or harass his wife. He was not forced out of the marital home. Even though he was still living in their shared home in Bronxville, New York, Scott also kept an apartment in Greenwich, Connecticut, in a six-apartment complex. He told his neighbors there that he was unmarried and only mentioned a seven-year-old daughter he had from a previous relationship. Apparently, he told Anne that the apartment was an office for his painting business. Apparently, he told Anne that the apartment was an office for his painting business. He also failed to mention to Anne that he had two different bank accounts under different names and social security numbers. One of his neighbors called Scott a hell of a nice guy. Another neighbor said Scott was very helpful to the landlord, making spot repairs to help out. His downstairs neighbor was the closest to Scott, the two often popping into each other's place to have a beer or coffee. Scott had told her he lived in the apartment for eight years and never mentioned he was married or that he had a three-year-old daughter. On December 26, he did mention to her a five-year-old daughter who had a different mother than his seven-year-old. At that time, Scott told his neighbor that he was depressed about the holidays and was having family problems. He told her he was considering going to the Florida Keys for a month or buying a house in town. He added that he was also considering jumping off a bridge. Scott had always been helpful and kind to this neighbor, helping her with things in her apartment. She only heard him lose his temper once, with a roommate who had lived with him at the time. He told the roommate to get out of his apartment, or he would beat him up. On Christmas Eve 1993, there was an open house in Bronxville that Anne had been expected to attend, but she did not go. She instead went to the emergency room and returned home with an eye patch. She spoke with one of her friends who told reporters that Anne had a secret code for the times that Scott had physically assaulted her. Scott listened in on her phone calls, and so she couldn't reveal explicitly over the phone what was happening in her home. On Christmas Eve, Anne told a friend that she had a scratched cornea and could not attend the open house, but would be sending a Christmas card. The friend later gave the card to police, which had a handwritten message inside. Wouldn't you know, instead of decking the halls, I would get decked myself. When you know more, you can do more. What if you could use science to discover more about your body? Find out what you need for your healthier tomorrow with Everly Well. 
Everly Well is digital healthcare designed for you, all at an affordable and transparent price. With over 30 at-home lab tests, you'll be able to choose the test that makes the most sense for you to get the answers you need, like the women's health test or the food sensitivity test. I'm personally doing the metabolic test, and it really is so simple to take. I'll tell you how it works. Everly Well ships the products straight to my home all in one package. I just have to prick my finger and collect a blood sample for testing. And since a prepaid shipping label is included, it's as easy as putting it in the mail and waiting for my lab results, which are physician-reviewed. And they get sent to my phone in just a couple of days. Everly Well services are quick, convenient, and bring me such a peace of mind as I learn more about my body and how it works. So both I and any primary healthcare physicians can tailor my healthcare to my needs. So I've already sent back my test and I'm waiting to get the results and I can't wait to share how that process went. And for listeners of the show, Everly Well is offering a special discount of 20% off an at-home lab test at everlywell.com TCFC. That's everlywell.com TCFC for 20% off your next at-home lab test. everlywell.com TCFC. More than 25 podcasts have come together to help raise money for the Justice for Leon Laurelis movement. Leon Laurelis was a beloved son, brother, uncle, and friend. On May 10, 1996, Leon was found off of FM-2126 in rural Texas, shot execution-style next to his burning car. The case has remained opened and unsolved ever since. There is reason to believe that, for a variety of reasons, Leon's case did not get the attention it deserved. Many consider Leon's murder to be a possible hate crime, as he was a gay Hispanic man. Leon's niece, Arlene, is now fighting for justice in her uncle's case. However, she has faced one obstacle after another in her push for movement. Arlene needs money for an attorney, a PI, and hopefully a memorial mural. As one way to raise money for Arlene's needs, supporters have put together an auction for a massive bundle of merch from 25-plus podcasters, including True Crime Fan Club, Generation Y, Swindled, and Voices for Justice. The auction will open at 10 a.m. Eastern on Wednesday, September 14th. It will end 48 hours later, on Friday, September 16th. The auction will take place on the Fallline's Instagram account, and the highest bidder will donate their bid directly to Leon's GoFundMe. Please join us then to place your bid on this bundle of merch. Happy bidding, and thank you. The day before, Anne had lunch with the same friend and told her that Scott had pushed her down the stairs, thrown her on the floor, and kicked her. Anne put up her hands and said, Take anything you want, but don't hurt me anymore. I can't take it anymore. The friend had seen the way Scott treated Anne just a few months before, at a wedding. Scott hadn't been invited to the wedding originally because he was so disliked, and there were enough people there who wanted to punch him out. Once they were at the wedding, Scott didn't want to dance, so Anne joined another woman on the dance floor. She was having such a good time that, while dancing, she did the splits. This enraged Scott, who grabbed her off the dance floor, yelling at her, You're acting like a slut. Everyone is laughing at you. Anne ran to hide in a utility closet, joined by her friend, and Scott followed them, grabbing Anne by the waist and dragging her out. Scott tormented Anne in many different ways. 
For their second anniversary, he bought his 105-pound wife a set of bathroom scales and told her, You better use this every day. I don't want to see an inch of fat on you. By December, they were sleeping in separate bedrooms, even though Anne said there were nights he did not return home at all. Those nights he did. He would arrive in the early morning hours and wake Anne up by shouting insults at her. He would call her a slut or stupid and once accused her of having an affair, claiming she was diseased. Anne rushed to her gynecologist's office the next day to prove to Scott she was not diseased. Other times, he would wake her up and tell her he was going to kill her and cut her body into little pieces, then scatter them all over New York. She began sleeping with a hammer under her bed. Anne filed multiple affidavits against Scott. In the first, she had written that his physical abuse began on April 20, 1991, when Scott tried to push her out of the car as he was driving on Interstate 95. An order of protection had been granted in this first case, but later expired when Anne and Scott reconciled. In her later affidavit on December 6, 1993, Anne tried to have Scott removed from the house. She wrote that Scott had threatened to strangle her and had repeatedly pushed and pulled her in an attempt to force her into his car. Anne stated she wanted Scott removed because he was taking important documents, such as Tori's birth certificate, and when she asked for it back, Scott slammed her against the wall and pushed her out of the doorway. Anne finished her affidavit with the plea that Scott be removed from the house as they have no peace of mind and he has an apartment in Greenwich, Connecticut. However, the paperwork she filed for the later affidavit on December 6, 1993, did not contain crucial information from the previous affidavit, where she had stated Scott had tried to throw her out of a moving car. The judge ultimately decided Anne's life was not in danger, so ruled that Scott could not harass, assault, or threaten her, or take their daughter. According to the transcript, Anne said, thank you, and did not bring up having Scott removed. On December 29th, Anne went back to family court in New Rochelle, but the judge was on vacation. Anne was told that family court was closed until after the new year and she should come back in January. However, there was a family court judge on duty in White Plains, New York that day. She then went to family justice in Westchester, where the chairwoman advised her to move into one of their shelters. However, Anne's attorney said that would be construed as abandonment and she could lose her home. Just two days later, on New Year's Eve, 1993, Anne was in the kitchen, crying. Her two adult daughters found her there and asked her what was wrong. Anne explained that Scott had threatened her once again, but this time, he said the threats would stop and something would happen. Worried about her mother, Annie offered to stay home, but her mom said everything was okay and insisted both girls go out. At her mother's insistence, Alexandra headed to Vermont for the holiday and Annie stayed with Anne until around 10 o'clock that night, then went to a party. She came home around 4 o'clock in the morning and could not get into the house. Shortly after she arrived at the house, Bronxville police arrived. They had received a call from Todd Douglas, Scott's brother, who said Scott had called him earlier, and because of this, Todd thought they should check out the house. Police found Anne Douglas in Annie's bedroom, the victim of a violent beating. Her small dog was trying to comfort her, while three-year-old Tori slept in the next room. Anne was rushed to the hospital, where she died on January 6th without ever regaining consciousness. 
Hours before, Scott's 1982 BMW was found, engine running, in the middle of the Tappan Zee Bridge in New York City. A bloody hammer was found in the car, but Scott Douglas was nowhere in sight. Authorities assumed Scott had jumped from the bridge, but due to the weather, they could not search the Hudson. Westchester County had a newly elected district attorney, and this was her first case. Janine Pirro, the first female elected to the position, had been sworn in just hours before Anne's body was found. Her media presence during the search for Scott Douglas led to Janine being a frequent contributor on nationally televised shows such as Nightline, Geraldo, and Larry King Live. Janine was well-suited to finding justice for Anne. As an assistant DA in the 1970s, she convinced her boss to apply for a grant for prosecutors to establish domestic abuse branches. This grant was won, and Janine was named chief of the First Domestic Violence and Child Abuse Bureau. A warrant for Scott Douglas on attempted murder charges was initially issued, then revised on January 7th to a warrant for first-degree murder. The family issued a reward of $25,000 for Scott's return. They soon updated this to $100,000, believing Scott had staged the appearance of a suicide. Investigators could not find the camping gear Scott had purchased in early December, and this led the family to believe that he was living off the grid. An application for a new birth certificate in Scott's name had been found in the Bronxville home, and Scott had put a different name for his mother. Also, $30,000 worth of Anne's jewelry was not located after the attack, and the family believed Scott took it. Not long into the investigation, information was released that three-year-old Tori had witnessed her father's attack on her mother. Tori told family members, Daddy was giving Mommy so many bad boo-boos. Daddy gave Mommy many boo-boos. Why is Mommy wearing war paint? She later asked, Is Mommy an angel in heaven? Does Mommy still have boo-boos on her face? Tori was kept under tight security for her protection. The family fearing Scott would show up and kidnap her. The news of the murder and manhunt made national headlines, with an attorney representing Anne's adult daughters appearing on shows such as Donahue. Just as there were dozens, possibly hundreds of supporters for Anne, there were acquaintances and friends of Scott who said he could not have committed such an act. One of these was an ex-girlfriend who said Scott always told her men should not hit women. This ex-girlfriend and her new husband helped Scott get a job as a caretaker for Wallace Rouse, which led to Scott living in a cottage on Wallace's property. Wallace said Scott went out with multiple wealthy women who would pick up Scott in their Mercedes or Cadillacs. However, one night, things got a little out of hand with one of these women when Scott assaulted her and then, during the altercation, put his hand through a window of the cottage. This resulted in a five-hour-long surgery and a lawsuit Scott filed against Wallace. Scott had won $10,000 in the suit. On March 30, 1994, a railroad employee discovered a decomposing body in the Hudson River, downstream of the Tappan Zee Bridge. Through dental records, the body was identified as that of Scott Douglas. Alexandra Morell expressed relief that he had been found and wasn't going to come back for her or Tori. The relief was short-lived, as baby Tori was dragged into a custody battle. She ended up living with her mother's sister in Vermont. Within weeks, the man who found Scott's body said he was looking for the reward. However, he was told by the Scripps attorney that the money was to entice someone to bring Scott back from Mexico, 
not fish his body out of the Hudson. When Anne's first husband, Alexander, heard of her beating, he checked himself out of a hospital in Pennsylvania and rushed to Anne's bedside, where he sat with her until she passed away. He had been receiving treatment for liver disease in the hospital, with roughly six weeks to six months to live due to cirrhosis of the liver. Anne's daughters, Alexandra and Annie, donated their mother's organs, including her liver, specifying their father should receive it. In what was almost a miracle, Anne's liver was compatible with Alexander, and the liver was accepted. Alexander said this last act was representative of how Anne had lived. The family's tragedies were not done, though. In September 2009, almost 16 years after her mother's murder, and at the end of a seemingly happy and light day spent with her sister, Annie Morrell parked her car on the Tappan Zee Bridge and plunged to her death. Although she left a suicide note, it didn't explain why she jumped. Alex said she knew Annie had always felt guilty about not staying home that night, but Alex would tell her that Scott would have killed her too. If you or a loved one is experiencing domestic violence, please reach out for help. The U.S. hotline is 800-799-7233 and the hotline in England 0808-200-00247. You can also call your respective emergency number, such as 911 or 999. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy our podcast, please review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast player of choice. It definitely helps us out. You can also follow us on our social media. We're active on Twitter at TrueCrimeFCPod, Facebook at Facebook.com slash TCFCPodcast, and Instagram at TrueCrimeFanClubPod. And our website is TrueCrimeFanClub.com. We'd love to hear your episode suggestions, so feel free to send us an email at TCFCPod at gmail.com. This episode was researched and written by Susie St. John. Content editing by Jesse Hawk. Production assistance by Jesse Hawk. Produced by the best in the business, Neeks at We Talk of Dreams. Check him out on Twitter at We Talk of Dreams or WeTalkofDreams.com.